Football MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. You know a new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Fly Racing, Blends All Racing Motor Oil, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, 612 Suspension, Fast Foundry, and Pro Glow. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Industry Seating Podcast. My name is Jason Thomas. It is December 12th, 2021, and we are in the throes of the offseason. There's really no motorcycle racing going on at all. Uh, so I'm going to take this opportunity to answer a few Twitter questions. I made some notes of my own, just things I wanted to kind of cover and, and touch on. Before we do, let's thank the sponsors of this, Pirelli Tires, Guts Racing, Plum Creek Funding, Fast Foundry, Works Connection, Pro Glow Wash, Grant Stone Boots, and Fly Racing. So let's just jump right into it. I'll cover the sponsors a little bit more later, which I know is all of your favorite. I, I get it. But let's jump right into it. Um, I'm going to start with the notes that I made, and then I will uh, I'll follow up with some questions that some of you were nice enough to, to throw at me for, for this podcast. I just kind of last minute asked and got some responses, so that's cool. Thank you to all of you. Uh, I wanted to touch on the new KTMs, so pretty controversial. You you guys probably listened to you know Pulp MX where we kind of we talked about this, but uh, Vital MX decided to post or re, I should say repost a photo of the new KTMs earlier than KTM had asked, and I wasn't thrilled about it. I didn't think it was the right call to do that. I'm sure they don't care. It doesn't matter, you know, my thoughts. But all these other media outlets have the same information. They're texted photos, they're emailed photos. This isn't, you know, information that only Vital had. And that was really my problem is that they decided to go out on their own and be the newsbreakers on this when everybody else was respectful of KTM's wishes. And I just, as a brand, you know, I'm, I'm in that position often where we have information that we need to release early to our trusted media partners with the understanding that they, they won't post stuff, that they won't burn us and they'll, you know, let us execute or at least the, the right way and, and Vital didn't really do that. So up to them, you know, they're their own bosses. I, I'm sure they don't care what I think or say or do. Um, it will be interesting to see how KTM responds in the future. Maybe they do nothing. Maybe they, or maybe they hold a grudge. I, I personally would be really upset if I was in KTM shoes if that was fly racing and they did something like that to us, I, w- I would be very upset. Um, so I'll just leave that there. But as far as the equipment itself, I'm curious to see how this goes because one thing I've learned over the years of just watching is that when you get a bike this late into the off season, and, and I know those guys have been riding it for a bit, but this isn't the first time this has happened where new models arrive late, even to the first teams to receive them, which would be the factory teams, of course, you really don't have enough time, like testing time, and you don't have enough spare parts. You don't have enough different parts. And when I say that, I mean like linkages and triple clamps and the races and uh, different chassis things you can change that take time to develop. And not only do you not even really know what you want yet, it then takes time to build those things. You know, it's not a, a just, you know, snap of your fingers and you have all these extra parts that you can then adjust the bike and make changes and improve it where teams that are working off of the same platform, they have so many tools at their disposal to then work from, to make the bike better, you know, and they've, it's not this brand new template that they have to start from scratch. They know what works. They know what doesn't work. They can, and they can explore different paths, which happens quite a bit, but they, they can always come back to this base setting that they know works, right? At worst case, they can just go back to what they were running at the end of last Supercross season, and they know that's at least acceptable, you know? When you have this brand new bike starting from nothing, 
you don't know, right? You don't even know what you don't know yet because you could be going down this road where you think everything's going to work and this is the direction we need to be going when it turns out you show up to Anaheim and everything feels terrible. And that happens so often. You know, and I, I know a lot of you don't get to go inside these trucks and talk to the riders and things or even were a rider like myself, but you test and you practice and do all these things and you get to A1, the track's tighter, the dirt's different, uh, the moisture comes in at night and it gets more slippery than what you're used to. And all of the settings that you were so confident in feel like crap. And that's a pretty common theme is everybody's happy going into A1 and then you leave A1 and everybody hates their bike. Like that's just, that's really normal. And I've been there, I've seen it, I've done it. And I've, I've heard other riders have the same issues. And then you get this, you get this scramble panic test uh, all week after A1. And, and then you go into round two, hopefully much more confident. And uh, you, you kind of know what to expect out of the track and those confines. Because as much, even, even though the tracks are built identical, right? You can have a track that's in Southern California, the test track, that's literally 15 miles from Anaheim Stadium. And you get into that stadium and you have tough blocks and all these different variables and it will feel just so much different. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch. That was just my thought with KTM is watch for that. They may be super confident, but man, it's really difficult to have just a, a perfect weekend on a brand new motorcycle at the first round. You just, it just doesn't happen very often. It's far more likely that they struggle with settings and, they're kind of searching and I use air quotes around searching because that's a term they would use a lot is trying to find what works because they just don't have enough data to know yet. So just a note on that. So watch for, for Webb and AP, those will, and, and uh, Marvin, they, those will be the three guys that have that motorcycle on the Husky side and the gas gas side. I'm assuming that they will have the new model too. I think the Husky guys for sure do. I don't know with Barsha. Um, I'm sure as we get, more and more team releases and official photos. We'll, we'll know more about that. Uh, but just, just watch for that. Watch for those guys complaining. Um, something you could also watch for if you're actually at the event at Anaheim. Walk around after the first practices and see if those guys' bikes are torn down, right? If like the, the forks are off and the shocks off and subframe and you know they're changing triple clamps and all. The, the, those are great cues that they are not comfortable because otherwise you just move some clickers around, make small adjustments and go back out. Uh, but that's, that's your signal is if you see the bike torn in half. Um, yeah, they're, they're really looking to make some pretty sweeping changes there. Overall for the off season, it's been really quiet, which is pretty typical. I mean, everybody kind of has their head down. Uh, you know, the Honda guys, at least, you know, Sexton's been in Santa Barbara. He is working with Peter Park now. Uh, I don't think he's working with James anymore as far as riding coach. Um, that seemed to not work out, which pretty typical. I don't know, you know, James, I don't know him that well, but it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of continuity there in really any of his projects. Um, you know, we'll see what this podcast turns into if he's, if he sustains that. But remember, he was doing all kinds of things. He was doing that show with Feld uh, for Supercross. Then he was doing the Sexton thing. And, and it seems just like he gets into projects, gets bored, and then gets out. So uh, curious there, but more the, the real topic was Sexton. You know, he's doing the same program that I've seen a bunch of other riders do. Chad Reed was on this program. Uh, I believe Roxon was, he, he might still be. I don't know Roxon's uh, current, I, I, didn't, I know Roxon was on this program, but it is a program that um, Steve Astafin, who is, um, you know, he was Chad Reed's agent. He is Ken Roxon's agent. Uh, and his company is Chase Sexton's. Uh, Beaker is Chase Sexton's agent who works for Steve Astafin group, the family. Peter Park is very tight with that company. Steve Astafin, Beaker, all those guys. So you see a lot of their athletes get pushed towards Peter Park. Uh, I think it's called Platinum Fitness, something like that. But it's Platinum SB, which is Santa Barbara Fitness, something like that. doesn't matter. But that's where Sexton is. We'll see if it works for him. I, you know, it's funny. Everybody, when they get into a new training program, they're just over the moon about it. This is going to make all the difference. I'm going to go win. I finally found, you know, that last extra 1%, the final ingredient, whatever cliche you want to throw in there. I've heard it so many times. 
And I heard it from Chad. You know, he was out there. He was so excited. They're mountain biking and doing all these things. And he was so thrilled. And then, I don't know, six months later, a year later, whenever he stopped working with them, oh, this didn't work and that didn't work. And I knew when we were doing this that it wasn't going to work. And everybody's has 2020 vision in hindsight, right? So I'm not saying I know what will be good or bad for Chase Sexton. I have no idea. I guarantee you they're working hard because I, I remember looking through the log books of what Chad was doing. And it was, it was a lot, a lot of mountain biking, a lot of, uh, you know, core workouts and, and tons and tons of riding, which, you know, everybody's kind of doing the same thing, but there are different angles that a lot of these trainers will take and what they think is more important than others. Some like a lot of lifting, some hate lifting, some only want you to do stretching and, and core exercises. Uh, some are heavy on running, some are heavy on mountain biking, some are heavy on cycling, right? Everybody has their approach and I'm not the person that's going to say what's wrong or right. Um, I think different people respond differently to different approaches. Um, for me, I know after years of doing certain things, what worked for me and what didn't. And I'm, I'm assuming that's the same for everyone. And I, I think that's why you see some of these riders break out into their own programs. Like, I think that's why Roxon wanted to do his own thing. I think that's why you see Cooper Webb leave to do his own thing. Marvin goes to David Villeman because I think they are old enough now. They have enough experience with their own bodies and their programs to know what's working and what's not. Uh, so we'll see how this plays out. All those guys I mentioned are making sweeping changes in their programs. At the end of the day, they are going to have to answer for those decisions. I think Cooper Webb's decision was the most uh, inquisitive, curious, because he has, he has seen so much success on the Alden Baker's program. It's interesting that he would leave because I think he opens himself up to a ton of criticism. And he probably doesn't care. You know, we, we all know Cooper Webb's personality by now. He's very standoffish. Not in a bad way. I don't mean that as criticism. I just mean that's who he is. Like, he will face any criticism head on. He, he doesn't shy away from confrontation at all, it seems. So I think he welcomes that. But he is also opening himself up, up to those questions from, you know, KTM, from Red Bull, from anybody who is a huge part of his program, both just support-wise and financially. If he sees a big downturn in results, he's going to have to face hard questions. So we'll see how that goes. I don't really have an opinion. There's a lot of change going on there, though. That's for sure. New bike, new trainer, new riding coach, new everything. You know, he's working with Michael Byrne now. He's riding at the 83 compound. So different tracks, different riding partners, different everything. Uh, so yeah, he's going to have to be the one that has to sort that out. And it's really challenging coming off of a, you know, supercross championship. That's what you're going to be measured against. We saw how damn good he was at the end of the year. He was really difficult for anybody to deal with. And that's a, that's a really high level that he's going to have to sustain. Otherwise it's going to seem like he made the wrong, the wrong decision. It doesn't have to be, that doesn't have to be truth. It could be the bike. It could be anything, but the results are going to tell the tale and they're going to be impossible to fight against because that's, everybody's going to look at these changes and go, you should have stayed at Alden's. If he does bad, if he, if he wins, he's going to be able to laugh at everybody and say, listen, I know what's best for me. I made this decision with, you know, eyes wide open. Um, but I, I just think it's a really interesting storyline to the 22 season, arguably the, for me, the most interesting to see how that goes. There's the Tomac thing with Yamaha. That's obviously in there too. But for me, behind the scenes with the most variables, I, I love this web change just to see how that all plays out. Uh, I wanted to note on Adam Cinturillo. Um, I, I'm pretty big on his chances early in the season. You know, if you look in the past, he's really come into seasons pretty hot. Um, and I think the work he's put in, you know, he had uh, got some stuff surgically repaired, took time off, and he's really slowly built himself up, and he should be 100% coming into Anaheim. And, and I think he's going to come out swinging. That's just his MO. That's how, you know, I think he approaches seasons. And we've seen other guys that same way, like Shane McElrath, another guy in the 250 class that always came out just smoking hot. Uh, so I could see 
AC winning the first round, but I do expect him to be on the podium. I just think he's going to be that fast. I think he'll qualify fastest and do all those things that we expect from AC. Um, so just keep an eye on him. Obviously, we have another month plus, well, a little less than a month now to go before A1, and, and injuries can happen, stupid things can happen. But right now, uh, I think he's poised to be really, really strong at, uh, at A1. Secondarily to that, I think Roxon and Barsha too. Um, I don't know what the, the deal is with Barsha. I don't know if he's got the new bike, the old bike. I don't know there. I, I should know that, but I just haven't seen a lot out of him. So I don't know. Maybe I could look on his Instagram. Maybe he's been posting. But um, we all know how strong Barsha has been at Anaheim, right? He's won, what, three in a row or whatever it's it's been. Um, so watch to see what he brings. You know he's going to be confident. You know he's going to be feeling good. And, and when you have success at a certain venue – that carries on. That that doesn't go away. You just always have this positive feeling about a place. Doesn't always mean you're gonna do well. You know, I've tra- tracks like Bud's Creek, Troy, Ohio, um, Millville. There there were certain tracks that I always felt great at going in, flying there, driving to the track. I had this really strong, uh, just positive feeling going in. Like I was gonna do well. I felt really comfortable. And sometimes I did horrible. That didn't always translate into the results sheet, but I think it does give you a lot of confidence going into the event. And I don't, I don't expect that to be any different for for uh, Justin Barsha this year. On the Tomac front, I'm I'm really clueless as to how this goes. I don't have any preconceived notions. I'm really trying to keep an open mind. We haven't really seen Tomac have great starts to seasons, and that's that's just fact. If you look at the results. I've written a few columns on this. His average finish in the month of January is pretty poor. Uh, I think it was like three, sometimes three to four. It's been as high as seven um, is his average finish in January. So, and, and that's in seasons, right? So just keep in mind, if it doesn't start incredibly well for Tomac, that's not anything new. And they shouldn't panic. They shouldn't freak out. He is, he typically takes him time February is, is really the month where he a lot of times will get going and kind of find, uh, find the pace and, and find that comfort level. Maybe that's exacerbated in 2022 because of the new bike. We don't know, right? He hasn't ever and ha- won't have ever raced this bike until Anaheim. And you can practice, just like I opened this podcast with, you can practice all you want. You can do a million laps on it, which he will, in, on a track that's built just like Anaheim and all that. But it's always different it just it just is and I don't I can't scientifically tell you why other than just you start changing things the dirt's a little different the you know it's at nighttime versus daytime there's tough blocks on the track versus not which you know I know I mentioned a couple times but that's another topic why guys typically get hurt at the racetrack when they don't get hurt at the practice track is because they have tough blocks and other guys you know that's just a big variable that's I think it's underreported on is as why there's not a lot more practice injuries but I, I just don't know what to expect from Tomac and I don't really have a strong opinion on it other than possibly we could see him start slow and it for me I, I won't freak out I won't jump to conclusions I won't be looking for the panic button unless we get into February and you're really not seeing any real improvement if you if we're into February, mid-February, say like round six, seven, eight, and you're not seeing anything better out of him, like he's just still the same struggle bus that he was at the first round, and we're assuming that he's going to struggle at the first round, then you can start to press panic. But don't be fooled. Just give it some time on Tomac. So I'm, I'm just in this huge holding pattern and a wait and see on Tomac. Uh, a couple other things. Uh, Mookie, sorry, a little break. I had to read my notes. Uh, Mookie, I don't have, I'm kind of the same as Tomac, but I think the biggest cue here will be what does he look like, his physique? And, and that's, I'm really interested to know. Um, I, I'm sure people, obviously people see him every day. I don't know if Kiefer, you know, Chris Kiefer's at um, Baker's Factory right now. Maybe Kiefer will report on this. But I think if you see, Mookie come in super lean, I will be very excited to see what he's capable of. Um, I know how strict Alden's diet is, and I know how much exercise that Mookie's going to be forced to do. So I just don't know 
how he won't come in super lean. Like, I don't even know how that won't naturally occur. I just want to see how drastic it is because we, we, we always have seen Mookie. He's not overweight. That that's definitely not fair to say, but he's a big guy, you know, and you look at big James, you look at how James has gained little James has gained weight since he's left. That's just in their genetics. They are larger people if left to their own devices, right? You don't ride a bicycle for a couple hours a day and, and burn thousands of calories riding your dirt bike they are going to gain weight just genetically. So Mookie has always leaned towards that. He's definitely not big, right, compared to the average American, but compared to Marvin Muskan, he is. He's just a bigger bone, thicker guy. I want to see how much of that Alden takes off of him because Alden is huge on power to weight ratio. And you hear that in cycling and mountain biking and stuff all the time. You don't hear it as much in motorcycling because we have this engine, right? That kind of offsets that. But Alden's take is it's more about body efficiency and how many watts you can produce and how much energy you can expend before you get tired and your VO2 max and all those things, not just how hard can you pedal. So he's going to be really strict and has been, I'm sure, on Mookie as far as calorie intake. And I'm sure that was probably just project number one, right? First step of the process, we're going to get you super lean because my take would be, that's what Alden looks at. And he's like, okay, what do I need to get done first to improve Mookie? Like what, what's going to have the fastest impact? Let's get him lean. We need to take off 15 or 20 pounds, get him down to fighting weight, and then we'll see what he's really got. So I'll be very curious of that. Let's see what he shows up to that press conference Maybe we get some pictures of him before then, maybe not, but you, it, that's always the telltale sign, right? As everybody gets to the press conference, kind of looking at each other going like, mm, how lean are you? How fit are you? How much work did you do? And it's no different at those of you who are super into cycling. I've read a bunch of books and documentaries and I, I used to be really into cycling, but the Tour de France and even events leading up to it some of the other tours leading up to the Tour de France that are kind of warm-up races, those guys would all be scoping each other out. And it sounds funny to think about that, but they'd be looking at their, their butt, right? Because you carry a lot of weight in your butt, and it's like the last bit of weight to lose. So they would I, – I read a story about this one trainer, a Dutch, I think, maybe Belgian. He would always go around and start pinching a bunch of the riders' butt, and he could tell – how fit they were and how ready they were by grabbing that. Like he would, he would be pinching him like, Hey, what's up? You know, whatever. But that was his telltale sign of like, man, he had zero body fat. Like it was all rock hard muscle in his butt. That guy's super fit. We need to be really ready for him at the tour, which I know that's crazy and it's way off topic, but it's, it's kind of the same dynamic at the press conference. Yes. They're not touching each other. Good on them. That that's, a, that's the way we need to be in 2021. But looking at their face, looking at their cheeks, their face cheeks, um, you can see how drawn in they are, like how lean, you know, their their features are. That's a great way. The face is a, is a great way to tell how much work you've been doing too is, is how much weight you've lost in your face. So that's what I'll be looking for for Mookie. And, and I think Mookie brings a lot to the series, like as far as personality, excitement, character a different he's a different type of rider than these other guys are he's he's just got so much flair and he can really go way above most people's ceiling like he can push the the ceiling on speed to where most people can't so i'm hoping that he comes in the the fittest he's ever been because i really want i would love for mookie to be relevant to be in the mix to win races that would just add so much excitement to the series and just add another storyline to this thing so that's kind of all the notes I had. Um, let's jump into a few of these, uh, few of these Twitter questions, and, and a few of them are very similar. So I'm going to kind of paraphrase a few of them. Uh, many of them are asking about boot camp. Um, you know, how hard are they working right now? What are they working on at this point of the season? So to kind of paraphrase a bunch of those, uh, Justin Puckett, James Burfield, a few guys had the same type question. But right now, December twelfth. They've gone through a lot of the hard work already. They're, they're still kind of in the same phase where they're doing the same thing day in and day out over and over and over. But that's going to be drawing to an end and it's going to change 
sooner than later. The next week or two, that's going to change. But for the last six weeks, they've been doing the same thing. Just ride moto after moto after moto after moto. They would do a few sprints, but not many. It would just be hard days. I'm talking two or three 20 lap that, you know, they would work on some techniques. Some they, of course they would have some testing days in there too, but a lot of it's just wake up, do your stretching or lifting, whatever your program entails, get to the track moto for several hours. You just do just lap after lap after lap and you have a set program. So you know exactly what you're doing that day. It could be, you know, uh, I don't know, eight, 10 lappers. It could be three twenties, whatever, how, and different guys approach that differently. Some guys love 10 lappers, um, at different, different weeks to try to keep the intensity up where other guys, uh, like Tim Ferry's trainer, Dean Golich, he, we just did twenties and thirties endlessly. I mean, till we dropped, we just couldn't even get on our bike anymore because our butt hurt so bad. We were so chafed and our legs were so sore from standing up during those motos. We were doing just day after day after day of, of that type of riding where other guys are more worried about intensity throughout that process. Uh, Dean's program wasn't, it was just this brutal amount of work. And, and I'm talking like accumulation of laps. He wanted a ton of volume to build a huge base foundation that we would lean on. We would lean on that base throughout the rest of the season where we could really lower the workload throughout the race season and, and allow our bodies to recover from travel and racing and all those things. But you had this really strong base fitness level that you, you know, you built up in October, November, December that you were then going to utilize all the way through the supercross and motocross season. So different approaches there, but to answer the question specifically, it's, it's hard days right now. It, it's, uh, like I said, wake up, stretch, lift, go to the track, you moto, and then you come back and then you typically would do some sort of bicycle ride. Most guys want to do uh, non-impact, you know, cardio. So you do bicycling. Some guys would do mountain biking. And at this point in the season, you're doing, there's no way you're doing less than an hour. You know, October, you're doing three hour rides. I would say November and December, it could be anywhere from one to two hours. You're probably not going to go much past two hours because your workload on, you know, on the motorcycle is already so high. You're just going to run out of energy, but, uh, you know, it's not a good time right now. It's not fun. These guys are not, you know, there's not a lot of smiling going on, uh, at the practice track because everybody's just tired, man. They're beat up, they're sore, they're hurting. Um, and it's just kind of the dog days of the off season right now. Uh, another question, who's going to win? This is from DJ pickle. Nice uh, handle there. Who wins first Sexton or AC? It's uh, a really tough one. Um, I'm pretty big on both guys. So I don't know, flip a coin. That's a terrible answer, but I think AC could possibly win Anaheim one. So let's go there. But as far as their, both of their long-term chances of success, I think both of them will be winning over the next few years. Um, you know, Andrew Short was on the Pulp MX show last week and he was talking about, you know, the younger generation are about to start showing up. It's about to be their time. And I, you know, I squarely put Sexton and AC in that group. You know, when he says the younger generation, they are two of the, the most formidable of that up and coming pack. And you have Plessinger in there and a few other guys, but I don't have a super strong opinion one over the other. You know, I think AC has the speed edge, but injuries have been such a problem. You just don't know if he's going to be able to sustain 17 rounds. Can he find a way to stay healthy all the way through a 450 Supercross season riding on that razor edge like he has been? Uh, next question, Tanner Hall. Will KTM or Gas Gas ever grow their 250 teams again, or do they plan to stay small? It seems like Honda has a plan for growth. I was thinking about this before I did the podcast. I was reading this, this specific question, and I, I just don't know if KTM feels that they need to. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. If, if you look at KTM's success in the 450 class, it has not been a direct result of their KTM programs. Try to go back and look at any of the KTM 250 programs and see where that's directly correlated to 450 success you're going to have a hard time because it hasn't, right? When they got Ryan Dungey, they hired him away from Suzuki. When they got Cooper Webb, they hired him away from Yamaha. So I don't think you necessarily have to develop your 250 program as a feeder 
to your 450 program because a lot of times those guys leave. They go to the highest bidder. They go to a team that they really wanted to be on anyway. Look at Eli Tomac. Kawasaki didn't develop him. He was developed by Honda's amateur program and then the 250 pro program by Honda, right? So there's no guarantee that long-term, you know, five years from now that Jet Lawrence is a Honda staple. I believe he will be, but there's no guarantee of that. What if KTM or uh, Kawasaki or whoever came in and offered him the moon? What if Star Yamaha came in and, and offered him, you know, the highest paid deal of all time? Like there are so many variables in that scenario that I just, this is my, you know, just my guess that KTM's looking at it going, man, what are we really gaining by this, right? Are we, we're not getting 450 champions out of our 250 program. That hasn't happened for them. It's happened for other people. Like Cincerillo, he's always been a Kawasaki guy. He's doing really well for Cowie now. Like it, it does work in certain scenarios, but it's, I think it's almost more the exception than the rule. You know, maybe Sexton pans out, but that wasn't the path for Roxon. Roxon was a KTM guy. He didn't, find that championship i guess he did win one but you know he went to suzuki then he was on ktm then he was at honda like he's been all over the place um so it wasn't like he was on a ktm 250 moved to the ktm 450 and the rest is history rode off into the sunset on a ktm that's just not how it's gone so long answer to a short question but i i wonder if they're just kind of jaded by the fact that it really has never panned out. You know, they've had more success going and poaching the rider they want and putting them on a great bike versus developing them all the way through their amateur and pro program. Uh, what else? We got a lot of F1 questions. <sighs> Guys, I, I'm not an F1 expert, so I have my opinion, of course. I, I don't like that officials determine the outcome. I don't like it at all. Um, and, and that doesn't mean one way or the other whether Max wins or Lewis had won, I just think that the officials are way too involved in Formula One racing. Um, you could say a little bit of the same for MotoGP, but not nearly as much. But I mean, look at, look at Formula One races over the years. There are constant penalties and you know, grid penalties and five-second penalties and all, I mean, just every race, they're involved in the results. And I, I just don't love that. It's just not my... Not my favorite thing about Formula One. I think, you know, officials are there to keep the peace, but they are not, you know, they're not supposed to be determining outcomes. Like, I just don't think, you know, the, the racers should be determining outcomes, not the stewards or the officials or whatever you want to call them. So um, do I think it was the right call? Um, no, I, I can see both sides. You know, I, I think for them to change their mind, at, you know, they make one decision, then they double back and decide that only a few of them can circle back and go around the leader. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If you're going to do for some of them, you got to kind of do for all of them. It just seemed like a lot of indecision and he was pressed to make a really hard decision in the moment, um, which I don't know that there was any alternative, but it just seemed a little bit of amateur hour. I can't even imagine how devastated Mercedes is. Um, but yeah, on the other side of that, there's all the jubilance and excitement for Red Bull. So yeah, I, I don't have a dog in the fight, nor do I really care all that much. Um, but yeah, I, I hate to see stuff like that kind of get taken out away from the racers and, and the officials' decisions weigh so heavily on it. Um, I do think Max was a deserving champion. He was great all year. You know, the, the strides forward that Red Bull made uh, with Honda specifically was really impressive. Uh, do I think Mercedes still had the best car? Yes, I do. But Red Bull made some serious steps forward, so they should be commended for that. For those of you who have been watching for a while, you'll remember how much of a complete and utter disaster the Honda project with McLaren was. And I mean just colossal failure. What was that 2017, I think? Um, there was a documentary... Uh, that Paul Parabinos actually recommended that followed McLaren around for that season. And Honda looked like they didn't even know what they were doing. They looked like they were completely inept in every aspect of Formula One racing. And to see them now, I believe four years later, it could be a little longer than that, so don't quote me, to see them 
just look like they had the fastest car. At times, Mercedes, I still think, improved the last month or two and found whatever they found. They got the car better. But you cannot deny how big of steps that Honda and that team took. So kudos to them. Bummer for Lewis Hamilton. I'm sure they'll come back more motivated than ever. And look, Mercedes and Lewis had come off of four straight titles. So maybe this was the motivation they needed to you know, come back next year even stronger because I think they had lost a step this year. You look at the, the difference that Red Bull and Honda, how big of a gap they made up, and maybe Mercedes got a little complacent. I don't know. I'm 100% speculating. I have zero inside information. Um, so I, that's why I really try to not have strong opinions because I'm not an insider in that world. I'm, I'm just a spectator to it, just like all of you are, where Supercross and Moto, I get to talk to these guys, and I, it's, I've been around it for a really long time, um, and I feel like my opinion carries more weight than some people does. And that, that may be wrong or right. You don't have to agree with that. That's just my perspective because I'm closer to it. I have more information. A lot of times I can't even share that information. That's it's a big part of it. Like I know Steve, Steve Mathis and, and Jason Wygant and I talk about this a lot. Is like guys feel like they have a scoop on something and they go blow people out. Well, yeah, we knew that too. But guess what? We didn't see it as being the professional thing to do to blow someone out and to share information that shouldn't be shared. And, you know, Steve has a really difficult time with that because it is part of his job to have inside information and share it. Like we always say it's scoops, right? Air quotes around scoops. But he sometimes, sometimes he doesn't share stuff too. He knows a lot that he doesn't talk about because it's not the right thing to do. You can't talk about everything you know just because it's, it can really harm people's careers and their personal relationships. There's a lot of that stuff that we hold back. I don't have any of that for Formula One, right? I'm just I'm watching the TVs and reading the blogs and doing all the things that you are. But think about all the things that go on behind the scenes that you and I don't know about. The personalities and the uh, whether it's good or bad relationships between team members and all those things that the tech side, all the, the data and the technology of the cars that we, we simply don't know about it because it's not public information. So that's why I really try to be careful with having too strong of an, an opinion on some of this stuff because I, I just don't know enough. I'm not close enough to it to, uh, to, have, to have a really strong information or, or opinion that I would trust in myself. Another question here, which, is, which has worse of officiating uh, Supercross, Motocross, or Formula One? I'll say this. Um, I have seen some horrific decisions made in Supercross. Um, the decision to black flag Chad Reed at Anaheim when you know he and Kennard got into it was one of the worst decisions I've ever seen made in any type of sport whatsoever in history. Um, absolute terrible decision made by John Gallagher in the moment. Um, John Gallagher has a temper, which I do too. I'd be the first one to tell you, but I believe John Gallagher lost his temper and made a really ill-advised decision in the moment. And it, I mean, think if Reed was in the championship hunt that year, what kind of damage that could have done for an incident that, yeah, okay, you could say it was ill-advised, whatever you want to find, Reed, dock him some points, whatever. No problem. I don't care. That probably called for, but to black flag someone in the moment without any time to review it, get a different television angle, cool down a little bit and make a rational decision. Unbelievably bad. We don't, we don't need to relive that. It was a long time ago. Um, what else we got here? I'm just kind of scrolling through a couple of these questions. Uh, when it comes to money, this is from Tom Hamill. When it comes to money to the top riders and bidding wars, are the gear companies their own worst enemy? You know, I don't know about that. Um, there have been several situations in the past where, and I'm speaking for fly racing, we just decide to bow out. The number has gotten too high. Uh, it's too expensive. The return on investment is, has gotten to a level where it's impossible to ever recoup any of that. And you're just, you get to a point where you're dealing with companies that have lost all sense of reason. Like they're just bidding against each other and they seemingly don't care anymore. The only thing that matters is they have to get this rider signed. Someone has told them, get the guy signed. I don't care what it takes. Just get the deal done, right? That's really 
not how our company operates, I've never heard that come down from the very top, right? We have one owner. He is incredibly generous as an owner to us and a great boss, but he's also very business-minded and he, he tries to really make smart decisions with how he spends you know, our, our, the decisions he makes for our marketing spend. Now, we can give him recommendations and we can say, hey, this, this is fair value or this is a, we would be reaching here or this is a great bargain. You know, sometimes that happens too. And typically he will listen to us. But when it comes to the very top line decisions, uh, when we're trying to hire one of the best guys, right? It, this year, we, we made a push to go after Cooper Webb. It didn't work out. There were some, comp, some variables that we just weren't able to overcome. Um, we just couldn't see eye to eye on a few of the details and, and therefore we bowed out of the, the process. But those decisions come from the very top, right? To spend that kind of money and commit those type of dollars, he has to be fully on board. No different than our decision as you know, Western Power Sports and Fly Racing to sign our Supercross contract with Feld Entertainment. That decision was his and his alone. We gave him our opinion. And when I say we, there are a few of us that I think he trusts in that arena, right? If you're going to ask me about tire supply over the next 24 months and what that's going to look like supply chain wise, I have nothing to offer. I don't know anything about that within reason. Like Pirelli tires would not be wanting to ask me about that dynamic. But if you're going to ask me, do I think that paying Cooper Webb X amount of dollars is the right decision based on this point in his career with the you know number one plate and all these things. I do have opinions on that. I do have things to share because that is my wheelhouse. Those are things that I know about and I've spent my entire life building up a knowledge base and, and reasonable, reasonable opinions about. So um, he does ask us that. We do give him our opinion. Same with thing with Supercross. You know, when we had the initial meeting with them, um, you know, afterwards we looked at the finances, the resources that it was going to take. And he asked us, what do you guys think I should do? And, but in the end, it's his decision, right? And so, um, got way off topic there, but to, to Tom's question, are we our own worst enemy? I think it's happened at times. I think we've seen numbers get really inflated on a few riders because, uh, some brands just refuse to back down. Um, you know, Fox and Thor and Alpine Stars have had some some classic bidding wars over the years. We haven't really been involved in too many of those. Uh, we have been in some bidding wars. I remember one uh, when we signed Zach Osborne, we were um, we were bidding back and forth with uh, with Fox and Alpine Stars, I believe. Um, I think it came down to Alpine Stars in the end. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, he ended up signing with us, and we have a great relationship long term with Zach now. But we have just not gotten into too many of those where we were willing to pay any price. We, we just, we don't really do that. And maybe it's been the wrong decision at times. Maybe we just needed to go to whatever num the number needed to be. Um, but I can just tell you as a company, that's not our MO. We, we just don't typically do that where maybe some other companies would be much more inclined to do that. Um, you know, Mr. Mazzarolo, uh, his full name is Gabriella Mazzarolo, is uh, the owner of Alpine Stars. He is notorious for if he has a guy that he wants, he's going to go get him. And he's not going to just offer him the moon, but he is going to outbid whoever he needs to. And that's his own conviction. I, I actually really uh, admire that about him because he, when he decides that he's going to make a decision on marketing, he doesn't really get told no because he will just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and be aggressive until the other side has to back down or they just decide this is, is gone too far and they have to back down. So, um, yeah, just not really us, but I, I definitely think at times we've seen other brands out there do it. See if there's any other, uh, questions, um, before we wrap this thing up. Um, last one, only MX fans asks, are bikes becoming too advanced and complicated for the average consumer? 450s are ridiculously powerful. I believe no. Um, and I'll tell you why. Yes, to your point, 450s are ridiculously powerful. That, that's very, very true. But why would we limit the power of a dirt bike when everything else doesn't really have a limit? 
You can go buy a, a Corvette. You can go buy all kinds of crazy fast cars. You can go buy a Ferrari. You can go buy a, a you know, a Tesla Plaid that's like zero to 60 in like two seconds. Uh, so, you know, those are readily available. And then you want to talk about something more dangerous, street bikes. You can go buy a Hayabusa. If you have a, a you know, a street, a motorcycle license, which is very easy to get, you can walk into a dealership tomorrow and go buy a Hayabusa that will blow your mind how fast it is. And I would say those, you know, a, a ZX14 or a Hayabusa or even a CBR1000 for that, you know, the, the Kawasaki, what is it, the uh, H2, any of those things, those things should be taken off the market before a 450. Those things will do 200 miles an hour and you don't have to have any skill at all. And just think about it. You can walk into a dealership, buy that motorcycle, basically sign and ride, you know, wouldn't really cost you anything, pull out into traffic on a rocket that'll do 200 miles an hour. That thing will do 100 miles an hour in second gear. And you're just going to pull out into oncoming traffic with that, you know, and we've seen some, obviously we see people pass away all the time. Um, I, I can't remember his name. Uh, Kellen Winslow, is that who it was that was on a street bike when he was playing for the Browns? Bought a street bike, crashed it in the parking lot of the dealership, broke his leg like really severely. But that stuff happens. Like that's what the average person is up against. Like those things are sold every single day. So in that light, no, I I don't think 450 should be toned down or taken off the market. You just have to be responsible. As humans, as people, there is a certain level of responsibility that I believe you have to take for yourself. You know, if you expect everyone to hold your hand and not allow you to do things, like we're going to lose all of our freedoms. You know, you have to be a responsible adult and make responsible decisions. And just because my truck, you know, I have a a GMC AT4, it'll probably do, I don't know, 100 and something miles an hour. You know, I don't know if it has a governor on it. I'm not going to go 100 miles an hour because that would be really stupid. I don't need to go that fast in my truck. Just because it can go that fast doesn't mean I should go that fast. So I, have, I assume that level of responsibility. No different than a 450. Yeah, a 450 could go a lot faster than I went on it. And I was even, you know, I would argue that I was at a pretty high level. Then someone like Chad Reed could go a lot faster than me. I knew that if I tried to go as fast as Chad Reed did, I was going to hurt myself. That's why I didn't go that fast because I was at my limit. It's no different than anybody else. If you don't know your limit and don't have or are unwilling to take personal responsibility, then don't buy it. <laughs> like that's just where I come down on it. I don't want Big Brother to make to make those decisions for me. I don't want you to tell me that I can't buy a bottle of alcohol just because it would be unsafe to drink the whole thing at once. Yeah, no crap. Like I'm I'm very aware of that, right? So you make smart decisions. You take responsibility. You drink within reason. You ride your motorcycle within reason. You drive your sports car within reason. All those things have to be applied to be a responsible adult. And that's just where I come down on it. So um, I do understand your point. The average person can get in big trouble really quickly on a 450, but that's no different than any other aspect of life, man. It it really doesn't matter. If you want to eat five gallons of ice cream in a sitting, that's not going to go well for you either. You know, it's, it's really, really no different. Um, you just have to be willing to accept some sort of responsibility for yourself. So that's it. That's, uh, that's all for this week. I appreciate everybody tuning in. I wasn't even sure if I was going to do one, but, um, you know, we do have sponsors of the show and I, and I want to make sure that we're talking about them. And also, I was, yeah, I hadn't done one in a couple of weeks. So thank you to Pirelli. Go check out that new range of uh, Scorpion MX-32 Midsoft Mini tires, which is really cool to have that tire on a mini bike. Guts Racing, check out their, uh, their graphics, the RJ Wide Wing Seat, all kinds of great products at GutsRacing.com. Plum Creek Funding, you can get a great deal on a jumbo loan, and, and a lot of you are probably rolling your eyes saying that you can't afford a jumbo loan, but some of you can. Um, there are great deals out there right now. Uh, Fannie, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have reduced their fees on a lot of things. So it is, it is a really great time to take advantage of these low interest rates because I used to talk about this a lot on the show and I can kind of go back to that, but we're going to see interest rates going up uh, in 2022, at least I'm going to say twice. 
I don't think we get three, but I think we're gonna get at least two interest rate hikes. So it's going to get more expensive to buy a home. That's that's end of the story. So if, you're, if you know you're gonna buy something, if you know you're gonna do a refi, you should probably do that sooner rather than later. Fast Foundry, they are a, a miracle worker for small business. They can really help you get efficient. Uh, if, even if you just have your own startup or your own company that you just wanna figure out how to take it to the next level, what is a phone call gonna hurt? Reach out to, uh, to Robert at Fast Foundry and just see what they can do. You could ask a really open-ended question and you may not even have the idea, right? It's not like you're going to them with the idea and, and you're asking them how to execute it. They're the experts. Let them bring the idea to you. Works Connection, bring, uh, use that promo code JT21. That Pro Launch Start device is the reason that a lot of these guys get the whole shots they do. It's not any secret why teams like Monster Star Yamaha, Factory Honda, these teams, you know, JGR used to use, you saw how many whole shots they got. Um, there's a reason they use it. It works. It's really easy to install comparatively to the competition. And uh, it can work for you. Again, use that pro co- promo code JT21. ProGlow has a promo code too, Moto15. At checkout, save yourself some money and use that ProGlow wash. It is a power sports specific wash. It, it's going to really help get off uh, you know, road grime and dirt. Because a lot of these tracks we ride, the dirt's really strange. Um, I know there were tracks in Florida that it was like impossible to get the dirt off. Uh, there's a track called Bithlow that's now Orlando Motocross Park that just had this nasty, oily dirt. Um, Gatorback's dirt was notorious. It's like this gumbo type clay mixed with like lime rock that was really difficult to get off. Um, that's why you want to use something like ProGlow because it's specifically concentrated and formulated to, uh, to work for power sports and getting that kind of nasty dirt off, off your motorcycle and not leave any sort of residue and, and prevent staining whether it's your frame or wheels or anything like that. Uh, also wanted to mention Grant Stone boots. I have several pairs of these things. I get to wear them out all the time. I wore them on Friday night, went to happy hour to meet some of my friends after I got back from Hawaii. And uh, yeah, wore my Grant Stone boots. Got a couple compliments as I always do. So check those guys out. Uh, really cool company. I've got to watch them kind of grow from the ground up. And of course, last but not least, Fly Racing. Check out flyracing.com. See the 2022 lineup. And uh, yeah, I haven't been in the office for a while, so I go back in tomorrow excited to get back to work as we are progressing towards the, uh, the new Supercross season. And uh, yeah, we actually have a big line meeting for uh, 2024 stuff on Monday, or actually on Tuesday. Um, we've got a bunch of new designs and it's really, really exciting times. We basically determine what the 2024 line is going to be on Tuesday. Uh, we have all these options. We've been narrowing them down, um, but if you know, th- this is the fun part of the job, right? You really get to determine the course of the brand and what the brand's going to look and feel like um, and what, you know, all those people are going to get to see, you know, what, 18, 19 months from now, something like that, maybe even longer, maybe 20 months from now. Um, but yeah, this is, this is when it all happens. It's a, it's a long time from here until anyone gets to see it, but this is how the product works or the process works, excuse me. So thanks again. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you next time.